A central part of our Unitarian Universalist heritage is the tradition of both a free pulpit and a free pew. The freedom of the pulpit means that I'm encouraged to preach about whatever I think would be meaningful or significant for us to consider, and the freedom of the pew means that just because myself or anybody else says something from this or any other pulpit doesn't mean you have to believe or do anything about it. That being said, once a year, members and friends of this congregation contribute all sorts of items and opportunities and offers to our annual auction, and each year my contribution is to preach a sermon on the topic of the highest bidder's choice, whatever topic you're passionate about or think would be particularly meaningful. So if there's a sermon topic you've been hoping will be addressed, our upcoming auction could be your chance. It's that uh, first Saturday in November. You'll be hearing more about it, or there's more information or order of service or on the homepage. Last year, Bob Ladner won the auction sermon, and the topic he chose was the recent book titled This Life, Secular Faith and Spiritual Freedom by Martin Hagland. Hagland, originally from Sweden, is a professor of comparative literature and humanities at Yale University, and he opens his book, This Life, with a poignant epigram from uh, Wuthering Heights, which is Emily Bronte's only novel. She writes, If I were in heaven, I should be extremely miserable. She says, I dreamt once that I was there, But heaven did not seem to be my home, and I broke my heart with weeping to come back to earth. And the angels, they were so angry that they flung me out into the middle of the heath on top of Wuthering Heights, where I awoke sobbing for joy. If I think back to the perspective of my theologically conservative um, childhood faith, that quote is extraordinarily challenging. How could one be miserable in heaven? Heaven is supposed to be the ultimate good place, but any of you seen the show, The Good Place? You may know, it's it's worth watching, Uh, may know that The Good Place has shadow sides, right? Um, You know, it's supposed to be this good place with harps and wings and mansions for everyone and streets paved with gold. Well, first of all, that may not be everyone's jam, right? But uh, if you were in heaven, you could think, how could you possibly long to return to earth? I was taught that this world is a veil of tears due to the inevitable losses that this finite human life in which we find ourselves inevitably results in, whereas heaven would be this place without loss of only praise and rapture. But for Bronte's character, it was awakening in this life and to this world that caused her to be overwhelmed with joy. Along those lines, there's a moment in my childhood sometime during middle school when I had an unexpected moment of clarity. And it's kind of, I woke up from a kind of a fog that I didn't realize I was in. And I suddenly realized, wait, I don't think any of these folks looking around my childhood congregation, I don't think any of these folks deep down really believe all this business about eternity in heaven. Or if they do, it seems to me like they're hedging their bets here on earth. Here's the thing. They told me to read the Bible, and I did. And then I started to notice things. 
For instance, I found myself bothered by a particular passage in the sixth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew that says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. But when I looked around, I saw a whole lot of adults storing up treasures on earth. And my increasingly skeptical adolescent brain thought, if you all really believed that you had at most 80 to 120 years here on earth compared to literally eternity in heaven, then why wouldn't you sacrifice 80 or 120 years? Sell all your earthly possessions as Jesus' followers did, uh, spend the rest of your life serving the least of these, and get some really big stars in your heavenly crown for that eternity in heaven for sacrificing this comparatively minuscule amount of time. Now, I'll confess that I, of course, don't know definitively what happens after we die. That's above my pay grade. As I have shared with you in previous sermons, and I don't have f- time to fully go back into it, I'll, I'll link to it if you want to see my more expanded thoughts on the topic. Uh, I'll certainly grant there's some interesting theories out there. Uh, for example, like Jung's theory of the collective unconscious, which could be somehow connected to where our individual consciousnesses emerge and where we might merge somehow back into after we shuffle off this mortal coil. I've also been doing this ministry thing long enough to have had people share with me a significant number of stories about the weird and strange and uncanny experiences that we humans sometimes have around trauma and loss and death. Taking all that into consideration, though, part of what I nevertheless appreciate most about Hagelin's book is his emphasis on all that we're not sure about. But here's what we do know. We have... This life that's right here in front of us, uh, and that the way we at least currently experience it, that is finite and limited. There's also the real possibility that when we die, that's it. Lights out. So a major takeaway from Hagelin's view is to make the most out of this life right now while we still have it. Hagelin actually ratchets up the stakes one notch further, and let's see if you're willing to go along with him. He invites us to consider, would we actually enjoy eternal life even if it were possible? Let's do a quick poll. If a genie appeared to you later today and offered you the chance to live forever, who would say yes? Anybody? We had very few in the early service as well, pretty consistent. Um, Uh, So, quoting another scholar, Hagelin says, you know, if you really think about it, if you try to imagine your existence not even just extending 300 years, that may or may not sound like a good idea to you, but how about 300,000 or 300 million or 300 billion, and then know that 300 billion years, that's not even the beginning of eternity, right? He's like, would you really want that. He says, these links of time, you know, world without end, amen, are, it would be impossible to retain any sense of recognizable structure of our human emotions, reactions, intentions, aspirations, interrelations, etc. Hagelin assumes, and it sounds like most of you are already convinced, and he assumes that'll convince most people that living forever would be undesirable. I'll say for what it's worth, if given the opportunity, I'd give it a shot. Uh, Let's give, let's give this the old college try. 
there's a whole, and there's a whole burgeoning field, I'm not alone, called transhumanism. You can Google it later if you're not sure what I'm talking about, exploring just that possibility of the distant day when technology could make some form of that possible. Though I would say I'd want the caveat of being able to self-unplug from that technology, uh, uh, you know, advanced euthanasia, as it were. Uh, if you're interested, if you're not really able to imagine what that would be like at all, have any of you seen Black Mirror on Netflix? Uh, there's an episode called San Junipero that, if you haven't seen that, is one among many uh, really interesting imaginations of what such a living forever through technology might look like. And you, you can unplug from San Junipero. Uh, but anyway, I'll have to bracket all that. Another sermon, another day. Uh, for now, I appreciate the case that Hagelin does make for what he calls secular faith. So not sort of traditional religious faith that puts your trust, your devotion, your, your best self in the afterlife or in the next world. He, for him, a secular faith puts your trust, puts your devotion in this life, in this world. His other primary emphasis is spiritual freedom, creating systems in which we finite humans can help each other make the most out of this limited time that we have on this earth. Along these lines, when someone says, you know, I have to do something, or even worse, you have to do this, right? I sometimes think of that New Hampshire state motto, the really fierce one, live free or die, right? So I offer this to you. Maybe this will be the takeaway for some of you from the sermon. So if somebody tells you, you have to do this, I sometimes think, look, all I have to do is live free or die. You know, like, that's all I have to do. Now, that being said, there's then this incredible power and so much that can flow from what we freely choose to do um, with that, that freedom. And so one contemporary exemplar that Hagelin explores of what could it mean to really embrace the full reality of this life in which we find ourselves, he looks to the Norwegian author Carl um, Uwe Kanausgaard, uh, and he, who's most well-known for his six-volume autobiographical series. He wrote it from around 2009 to 2011, and in that time he wrote an impressive 3,600 pages, which is no, no small thing. Uh, he undertakes this incredibly close study of his actual life, you know, no matter how quotidian or painful or intimate the details may be. So if you read through those six volumes, you're going to spend an incredible amount of time grocery shopping with Kanausgaard, uh, pushing baby prams in the city, attending to daily exchanges with his children, all rendered with this... Um, very detailed fidelity to actual life that really that tries to neither idealize nor deprecate the experience. Have any of you read Canal Scarred? Or okay, I, I would be surprised. I mean, like it's it's a big investment of time. Um, full disclosure: as I've heard about this global best-selling series over the past decade, part of me couldn't help thinking, I'm both intrigued, and that maybe sounds terrible. <laughs> <laughs> like reading this. Uh, but then I, I keep hearing, of course, there are people that don't like it, but also rave reviews. Some of you may know the novelist Zadie Smith, who I also really love. She talked about, you know, in between volumes, she said she craved the next volume like crack. You know, she wanted to know what else was going to happen in Kanarsgaard's life. And to be fair, the point is not a narcissistic obsession with any one person's life. The goal is really to point you back to your own 
life and the richness that is there if we pay attention. And to, that it, it can be easy for us to shift into autopilot, or for many of us. And so he's trying to slow us down and really notice the rich tapestry of detail. So when um, Knausgaard dedicates 20 pages to exchanges over breakfast with his daughter on a rainy Wednesday morning, or tries to pry open every sensation or emotion uh, that resonated in his 12-year-old self on the way home from swim practice one winter night, he's not just trying to impose his life upon us. He's inviting us, teaching us to remember what we can sometimes forget and to describe even in this painstaking detail how much was going on and to sensitize us to even sometimes these painful former selves that can also kind of shock us and bring us back to this life. He's directing us to these always diminishing number of opportunities to make the most of our reality or what our transcendentalist forebear Thoreau said to suck the marrow out of life, right? I wanted to dig deep, he wrote, and suck the marrow out of life. I should perhaps add briefly that this thing Knausgaard's doing in 3,600 pages in the 21st century, it's not sort of unique to him. Another quite fairly recent example would be, to scroll back a century, is Marcel Proust wrote this book in in Remembrance of Things Past, which was about 3,000 pages. So I think part of what Knausgaard's trying to do was to one-up Proust. uh, and, and, but Proust, likewise, if you read through that, he can dwell on the experience of falling asleep for 30 pages. He, can, he distills, tries to distill every nuance of an erotic touch, of a flickering memory, of an awakening sensation. And through his prose, again, he's trying to sharpen our perceptions, to refine our senses, to notice really how much is always going on with us. The aim is not to transport us into Proust's life, but to awaken us to the life more fully to the life we're living. Along these lines, um, one of the things I've been learning over the past few years in my meditation practice is that part of what got me on the practicing meditation and what lures a lot of people is this promise of, quote, waking up. And we could spend a lot of time talking about what that means, but part of what it means is these peak experiences. Uh, But I've come to learn that at least equally or more important to having peak waking up experiences is waking down is from those peaks, integrating those experiences into how you live your life, waking down. A lot of, one of the pitfalls of the spiritual journey can be the sense that it's disembodied and it's all in your head or it's all spiritual. And a a lot of it can be, how do you ground this down and into your actual body and your actual life? There's a famous book by um, Jack Kornfield called After the Ecstasy, The Laundry. And part of what he does in that book is talk about those things that I'm talking about right now, but he also interviews the friends and family of famous meditation teachers. You know, that just because someone has woken up and can teach how to cultivate those peak experiences doesn't mean even they have fully woken down and integrated that and still have a lot to do. There's another common pitfall in the spiritual journey is called spiritual bypassing, where people try to use spirituality to escape from life. And it tends to, one, it's not possible. Two, you tend to make those around you miserable, as well as yourself, typically. Uh, If you're interested in experimenting with that, one um, good way, if you haven't recently or at all experimented with our labyrinth that we have, it's, it's carved into the grass between on this ground right here between the sanctuary and the chapel. And it's a unicursal pattern, which just means there's only one way out, one way in and one way out. You can't get lost, and there's no minotaur at the center. 
And the invitation is to just walk that labyrinth and just be aware of the present moment. It's a walking meditation and to open yourself to sinking more deeply into the life you already have, right? It's not about going anywhere. You're just going in this spiral pattern, sinking more deeply into the life you already have. In addition to this emphasis on embracing the fullness of this life, I'd also be remiss if I failed to mention that another huge part of Canalsgaard's project is how are we shaping one another? How are we shaping this world? There's a famous quote by the philosopher Richard Rorty where he talks about his own journey from being raised um, a conservative Baptist to being uh, um, having what Canalsgaard would call secular faith. He says it turns out that all that time and energy that some people spend uh, on their individual salvation what's sometimes called fire insurance. He says, it turns out all that time and energy, it's actually transferable from hope in one's individual salvation in the next world to social hopes in the world one is creating for one's grandchildren and future generations. He says, we can take that same energy and direct it instead of our own salvation to collective salvation for people in this world. And Canalsgaard is really interested in that, in the ways shifting from other world religion to this worldly religion, from a disembodied spiritual life to an embodied life that cares about our bodies. Along those lines, I've often appreciated the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s prophetic words on April 3rd, 1968, on what turned out to be his last speech before, his, before he was killed. Uh, Speaking from the Christian tradition, he says, it's all right to talk about um, long white robes over yonder in all of its symbolism, but ultimately people want shoes and dresses and suits down here. It's all right to talk about streets flowing with milk and honey, but we also need to be concerned about slums down here and children who can't eat three meals a day. It's all right to talk about the new Jerusalem, but what about the new New York? the new Atlanta, the new Philadelphia, the new Los Angeles, the new Memphis. This is what he said we have to do. More than 50 years later, those words seem more prescient than ever. And although Dr. King was assassinated two um, years before the first Earth Day, I have no doubt that if he were still alive, he would have been marching side by side with Greta Thunberg and millions of others across the world in this youth-led global climate strike. And it's notable and not a coincidence that both Hagland, the author of This Life, and that young climate activist, Greta Thunberg, that they're Swedish and that this obsessed with the details of his life, um, Knausgaard, is Norwegian, right? They're all from these northern European countries that have a strong emphasis on this life and this world. And uh, the final section of Knausgaard's book is a strong call and plea, really, for more democratic socialism in this world. After all, if this life and this planet is all we know we have with any certainty, then the impulse is ever more urgent to do what our UU6 principle calls creating world community with peace, liberty, and justice, not merely for some, but for all. Along those lines, when Thoreau is asked on his deathbed, you're just about to die hours from dying at a young age from tuberculosis. He was asked, what do you think is going to happen after you die? And he responded famously, one world at a time. Five words. One world at a time. So may we make the most of this world and this life and our care for ourselves, for one another, 
and this planet. There's a lot to say about you know, this life, and to add just one more um, thing. Uh, one of the things that I think shifted perspectives for me is that when, when I ever have anxiety about, like, I don't know, not existing anymore, right? <laughs> I sometimes flip it around the other way, that, like, in, let's say, 1920 in Paris, like, I didn't exist, and I didn't know wasn't particularly bothered by that. So uh, if it turns out that after this life I won't exist, then, you know, 1920 Paris was doing all right. And, you know, so you can, you can kind of flip some of these things um, around sometimes to give perspective. And, and again, what I appreciate about Hagelin's book is emphasizing what we, doing what we can with what we know we're able to do. So may, as you go into this day and into this week to come, continue your journey in love. That's something we, we can control. Uh, uh, care for one another. Care for this one earth. Do justice and make peace. And as you go, whatever taste or touch you've had in this time and place of hope, of love, of peace or joy, that goes with you into the world. We're different for having spent this time together. May you live boldly. May you live with thanksgiving.